Hello, and welcome to The Round Room, the podcast where you get your bite-sized international news. I'm your co-host, Monica Rivera-Sosa. And I'm your co-host, Natalie Vasilev. This is a podcast made by Emerson College students for Emerson students. So this week, we are back with our regular international content, and we have a really important story for you guys today. However, we do want to quickly mention a couple trigger warnings. We understand that these are sensitive topics, and we do want to educate you, but if these topics are something you're not comfortable with discussing or hearing, um, please feel free to pause this and go about your regular day. But we will be talking about grief, um, genocide, um, war, and death in today's episode. So keep that in mind. Today, we'll be talking about the long-standing conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan. This is a very complicated conflict with many international relations in question, as well as other factors which have worsened the case, especially for Armenia. But we're excited to be back with international content, so please sit back and enjoy this week's episode. So going into some background, historically the conflict can go all the way back to 1915, but this modern conflict that we're um, specifically talking about started in 1988 when the Soviet Union was just beginning to fall apart. The Soviet Union had established the Nagorno-Karabakh region as an area of land between the neighboring countries of Armenia and Azerbaijan. The Soviet Union had established it as a part of Azerbaijan at first, even though 95% of its population has been ethnic Armenians. In 1988, by the time the Soviet Union was experiencing even further tensions, Armenia demanded that the area be given to them. And as the Soviet Union finally fell apart, tensions grew between the two countries and war broke out. By 1993, after the Soviet Union had collapsed, there were over 30,000 casualties, but Armenia had won over the area and had also won over some land in Azerbaijan. However, in 1994 again, Russia had established the Bishkek Protocol, which created a ceasefire and had created the land into an autonomous region. Since 1994, 2016 was the year with the most intense fighting up until 2020 when heavy fighting broke out again and both sides accused each other of violating ceasefire regulations. And by this point, Turkey had also joined in by creating peacekeepers. So both Russia and Turkey had put in peacekeepers within the Nagorno-Karabakh region. And by the end of 2020, Russia had intervened with peacekeepers and ended the fighting with Azerbaijan reclaiming most of the area's territory. And while ethnic Armenians still live there, the area finds itself surrounded and mostly helpless. Most recent and intense conflict had occurred in September of 2022 when a two-day fight had broken out and Azerbaijan had attacked Armenian territory and had killed around 300 civilians and over 2,700 Armenians were forced to evacuate from the area. So talking a little bit about the Armenian genocide, which was in 1915, it was the first genocide of the 20th century, and it is closely linked with the events of World War One. and I, I mentioned this earlier to Natalie, but it is a little bit of a foundational element of what we saw later on in the 20th century and other um, holocausts and genocides like the Holocaust in Germany and with our Jewish community. A lot of people regard the Armenian genocide as sort of a foundational building block for that. And approximately 1.5 million Armenian Christian people were living in the Ottoman Empire 
from spring 1915 um, through autumn 1916. And at least as many as 1.2 million people had died during the genocide. And this had happened through um, massacres, uh, plenty of individual killings, the spread of disease, starvation and dehydration, and plenty of other methods. Tens of thousands Armenian children were forcibly removed from their families and converted to Islam. Ottoman authorities perpetrated most of these persecutions and mass killings, supported by auxiliary troops and even some civilians. Kind of as you said previously, Monica, this has been like a model for plenty of other Mm -hmm. genocides, as well as ethnic cleansing, um, which we'd see later. But religion does come into a huge part here. We've seen that with um, trying to erase the Jewish religion, and now we're seeing it here with um, trying to erase the Armenian Christian religion with a Muslim majority of attacking. Yeah. And um, but the Ottoman government had uh, the reason for kind of why this genocide happened was um, put behind the Ottoman government, which was at the time controlled by the Committee of Union and Progress, also known as Young Turks, as they wanted to solidify Muslim Turkish dominance in the regions of central and eastern Anatolia by eliminating the existing Armenian presence in the area. Yeah. And I, I had also mentioned that the, tri- the trying to erase of Christianity or going in and specifically trying to convert these children to Islam reminds me a lot of um, colonization when um, these colonizers and um, would go on conquest and they'd go and try to convert Native Americans and the Native people of these lands into Christianity specifically. Um, and if not, they'd you know, commit mass ethnic cleansings and mass genocides. And this is really what that sort of brought back for me um, in terms of bringing religion into the picture and these children being forcibly removed. Especially with uh, Christian conversion schools in the United States and in Canada throughout um, where um, plenty of Native American children are forced to convert to Christianity and abandon their cultures. Um, We're kind of seeing a repeat of children being the main victims in a politicized, an over-politicized uh, um, conflict. Yeah, and, and I know you're probably thinking, well, that's what the United Nations is for. But in this specific situation, the UN's involvement gets a little tricky. Um, after the 2022 attacks, each country filed cases towards the UN court where they accuse each other of going against ceasefire regulations and killing civilians. And it's important here to mention that when Armenia and Azerbaijan had each presented their separate cases to the UN, both had told completely different perspectives of what has been happening, obviously with Armenia having a more accurate description of what has happened. But as both countries had kept fighting each other, there has been little assistance from the United Nations. And um, the United Nations had little physical actual help that had helped either country other than stating more outstanding support for Armenia rather than Azerbaijan since Azerbaijan had wrongfully gone against ceasefire regulations way more often, and it also killed way many more Armenian civilians and soldiers. And the UN Assistant Secretary General Miroslav Jenka had urged for both countries to end the conflict before it spread to the rest of the Caucasus region. Jenka had also stated that the UN re- believed Russia could continue its role in peacekeeping as Russia's responsibility is, quote, to facilitate and ensure the safe passage through the corridor, end quote. So to bring up the corridor, 
there's a roadblock that has been created called the Lachine Corridor. It's a long road that connects the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict region to the rest of Armenia. But it serves as a very important lifeline for approximately 120,000 civilians within the region and also keeps the region from being isolated and threatened to Azerbaijan. And in most recent news, Armenia has just declared to the UN that Azerbaijan has attempted to form a blockade on the road and it has raised protests from Armenians. And most recently, just a couple of days ago, five people were killed in the uprising and Armenia had said three police had been killed and Azerbaijan had said that, quote, two of its soldiers became martyrs. Once again, very different perspectives and we see which country is trying to portray a certain kind of image. And looking at sort of Armenia and Azerbaijan in post-communist and post-Soviet states, the tensions have been heating up for a lot of these former Soviet Union nations. The UN General Assembly voted to suspend Russia's membership in the UN Human Rights Council, and both Azerbaijan and Armenia have abstained from voting, actually. Uh The European Union began facilitating peace talks between Azerbaijan leader and the Armenian Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan. And in an International Republican Institute poll from last summer, 54% of Armenians had said that national security was their biggest concern and it was far ahead of domestic and economic issues. Thomas DeWall, a long-term writer on the region, um, said that Quote, Pashinyan is open about his unease with Armenia's military and economic reliance on Russia. He publicly questions the utility of the Russian-led Collective Security Treaty Organization, of which Armenia is a part. And despite rumblings of dissatisfaction from Moscow and menacing talk from Belarusian leader Alexander Lukashenko. Yeah, all of these post-Soviet, post-communist relationships are very interesting and really do form what the conflict looks like. Obviously, if those relations hadn't been there, I think we'd be seeing a completely different turnaround. But when we talk about um, Armenia and Azerbaijan abstaining from the UN vote, I think we see a lot of fear of what Russia could do to either country, especially with a post-Soviet mindset. And Belarus is incredibly close with Russia and alliance. I mean, we're seeing it in a dictatorship kind of state for both countries and yeah especially with the war in ukraine happening as well whereas ukraine is being punished for going against russian mentality against a communist mentality that has colonized ukraine for decades for years we're seeing a lot of fallout from that and maybe everything would look different if that weren't there i agree but um even more importantly turkish relations here are incredibly important Um, As we've previously said, Turkey and Azerbaijan are basically twins. Um, Both are majority Muslim countries. Both have Turkic languages and both are culturally very similar. And I've heard past and time and time again that if there is no country like Turkey other than Azerbaijan. Haydar Aliyev, the ex-president of Azerbaijan, has said when talking about Turkey and Azerbaijan that they are one nation in two different states. Turkey was one of the first countries to recognize Azerbaijan's independence in 1918, as well as Azerbaijan's restoration of independence from the Soviet Union in 1991. In September 2022, at a United Nations news conference, Turkish Defense Minister Halusi Akkar reiterated Turkey's support for Azerbaijan in its conflict with Armenia wholeheartedly. So Turkey is completely on Azerbaijan's side. They are best buddies. Yeah. And Armenia is just sort of 
isolated. You know, Russia's not really taking a side uh-huh. in the situation. Azerbaijan has Turkey, this, like, powerhouse giving them yeah. weapons. And yeah. Armenia just is... Unfortunately, Azerbaijan does have the, like, upper hand. And yeah. Armenia is sort of the underdog in this situation, unfortunately. And if Russian peacekeepers were to leave and just Turkish peacekeepers would be left, I think we could maybe kind of see where the conflict would end up leaning. And once again, this ties back all the way to the Ottoman Turks and the Ottoman Empire in 1915 with Azerbaijan once again having those close religious ties, same kind of wanting to spread of Muslim conversion. We see it all repeating itself and happening again. But if there is good news, at least a little bit, I think that United States relations have at least profoundly expressed support for Armenia. Former U.S. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi held a congressional delegation to show American support for Armenia after the September attacks that Azerbaijan had committed. She had said that she, quote, strongly condemned the illegal and deadly attacks by Azerbaijan. And American relations have been continuously attentive to the conflict, even despite threats from Azerbaijan authoritarianism. And multiple talks have also been conducted by the Biden administration. And while there isn't staunch physical support on the ground that's happening in the war zone, I think it's still better to maybe at least see some sort of support coming from the United States that's full-heartedly calling out Azerbaijan rather than kind of be in a stalemate position like Russia. It's good that we're finally getting, you know, some discussion on the topic, but it is a bit sad that I think Biden's actually like, one of the first people I've ever heard in government talk about this issue. That's true. Um, and unfortunately, in 2020, because of COVID and because of what was going on in Ukraine, not a lot of people found out about what, the war that was going on in Armenia. Um, and I, I'm really glad that there's finally you know, some light being shed on the topic. And speaking of, we actually got to sit down with Emerson student Becca Melconian, who has personal connections with this issue. Um, And we'll talk a little bit more about the issue as a whole, but also how it's being, you know, presented to the public. My family left Armenia in 1915 or around 1915 to escape the genocide done by the Ottoman Turks of the Armenian people. So that's why I'm in America. It's a community that we're really strong and we work really hard to make our voice known, but it is still hard knowing that so many people still don't recognize it and deny it. And then on top of that, there are so many issues between Armenia and Azerbaijan and how Azerbaijan's reactions to Armenia right now are kind of based on genocidal politics. What's happening right now um like the war in 2020 was already bad enough um there was a huge rise in armenian hate crimes especially in la um which is heavily populated by armenians and there were things like mistreating pow's there were things posted about like they um beheaded an armenian man and then sold his head for a hundred hundred bucks and like that was bad enough but now with the blockade of artsakh that is real ethnic cleansing behavior this is going to continue to happen unless it gets recognized with the same recognition as other world events so there are people like pushing for things and i know that there have been conversations and things pushing from the u.s government being like hey you guys can't do this this is not okay to like azerbaijan and so there have been 
more things that give me hope for like the U.S.'s involvement. Um, but I really think that this is becoming like a humanitarian issue. This is cutting off an ethnic minority. And I think it's the toughest thing with like international politics is like who enforces it and what what can be done. But I really think that everyone's like, never again. And that's what we always say. Like it's, the saying is always like 1915, never again. But it's happening again. And you guys need to get your heads out of the sand and hold hands and figure out what's going on and figure out how to help these people because these people are trapped. We'd like to say thank you to Becca for offering this insight to the topic and for just sitting down with us and giving us her time. We wanted to thank you for joining us on The Round Room today. We've been wanting to talk about Armenia and Azerbaijan for a very long time. You've been listening to The Round Room. We want to thank Common Collective, an Emerson organization which helps Emerson students come together to create and collaborate on projects for helping us produce this podcast. We hope this episode brought some things to light. To keep up with our social media, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at The Round Room Pod. We'll see you guys next time.